1678 while serving a prison sentence for preaching the gospel in Bedford, England, John Bunyan penned one of the most significant works in all of English literature, The Pilgrim's Progress. Next to the Bible, it has been read by more Christians than any other work and has been translated in over 200 languages. The book is an allegory of the Christian life, meaning the story is meant to be symbolic of your experience as a believer. The main character's name is Christian, and Bunyan introduces him in this way. He says, I saw a man clothed with rags, standing by a path with a book in his hand and a great burden upon his back. His face was turned from his own house, which stood nearby. I saw him open his book and read, and then begin to weep. No longer being able to control his feelings, he broke out with a mournful cry, saying, What shall I do? In this condition, he went into his house. Drying his tears, he restrained himself as best he could so that his wife and children might not know of his distress. But he could not be silent long, for his trouble increased. At length he began to tell his wife and children, O my dear wife and children, I, your father and companion, am undone by reason of an awful burden that lies heavy upon my heart. I am surely warned that this our city shall be burned with fire from heaven, in which terrible destruction is coming, and all of us shall surely perish, unless some way can be found whereby we may be delivered. And so the majority of this story focuses on this man's desire to be relieved of this terrible burden that he carries. And the reason that Bunyan's story has resonated with so many people and been embraced throughout the centuries is because it's a story that describes conversion. It's a story that people can relate to because it is, in a sense, their story. Not every element of Bunyan's tale will be the experience of every believer, but there are some elements of it that are necessary of all believers because they describe true conversion. Christian story begins where conversion must always begin, and that is with an awareness of sin. Just as Christian was weighed down by the recognition of the judgment he deserves, so too, for one to come to Christ, there must be a similar conviction. To truly come to Christ is to be made aware that your sin has not only made your life difficult or unmanageable in some way, but that it justly brings upon you divine wrath. Christian recognized this, and so must you. A person's belief in Christ must be a result of their recognition of their need of forgiveness. If people come to Christ without this awareness, it most often will not end in a true conversion because they will not be coming to Christ for the right reasons. 
some might hope to feel better about themselves, so they join a local church. Some might want to discover the meaning of life or to give them a sense of purpose or to give them that desire for community. And none of those are necessarily bad, but they are not addressing man's true problem. And if it is not their sin that is driving them to Christ, they will most likely not remain with Christ. I will even say that if the awareness of sin and the desire for forgiveness is not the primary reason that someone comes to Christ, the chances are that they're not coming to Christ at all. They might become more moral. They might have a desire to clean up their lives. But it's not the same as conversion. In fact, in his story, Bunyan gives several examples of characters that join Christian on his journey to the celestial city, which is a picture of heaven, and for one reason or another, they abandon that pursuit. None of them had the kind of burden that Christian had that was driving him toward the city. Now, we know for many years in America, people joined the church or called themselves Christians for all kinds of reasons. It was culturally acceptable to be a Christian. It was important to have a good reputation in the community, and so that meant being part of a church. In fact, it was almost synonymous with being an American. But Jesus never called people to come and be religious for social reasons or political reasons or anything else. He called people to come and die to themselves that they may be inwardly transformed. He called people to pass from death to life. And unless there is a deep awareness of one's sin as being an offense in the sight of a holy God, the danger is that they will eventually fall away or even worse, they will remain in the church and become like the Pharisee we see in this parable. There is a truth in Scripture that if you take an unregenerate person who is selfish by nature, that's how the Bible describes man, and you give them a bunch of religious activities but it is absent of the necessary heart change within, it just becomes another way for that selfish person to put themselves at the center. Their nature hasn't changed, so why would adding religious activities all of a sudden make them not selfish? It doesn't, it just makes them selfish in a different way. We call that self-righteous. It keeps the self at the center and it becomes just another way for the person to sin. Now, I don't mean to say that all religious people are just serving themselves. I know that there are people in various religions of the world and I do believe that there are sincere religious people who really do want to do good in the world. I'm not saying that's never the case. But you must always recognize that you don't see what God sees. 
And so we may see religious people in the world doing good works and seeming to have a heart that desires good for their fellow man, but God sees the heart. And so when God describes the heart, that's what we want to pay attention to because things are not always as they seem. God describes man as having a depraved nature to the point that he does not love goodness and truth from the heart. That's man's broken condition. And he's not going to begin loving goodness and truth from the heart by giving him commandments to keep. By giving him service to his community. Those kinds of works never change a man inwardly. He may do them, but because of his inherent brokenness, he is inclined to do those works to make much of himself rather than to make much of God. Now, the Pharisees are the archetypical example of what it looks like when unregenerate people try to live for God. We see them all throughout the Gospels. Jesus is constantly having encounters with them. And what we see in them is that all of their law-keeping does not bring out some kind of inward virtue. It just reveals the sin that's already there. We have a text this evening. Jesus teaches a parable to expose what is hidden behind religion and what happens when the heart of a person is not changed and he is not made aware of his own sinfulness. He does not carry a burden on his back. He is not like Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress. So we saw a parable last week where Jesus... um, Right up front, we are given the purpose or the intent of the parable, and we see it again, two parables in a row. We don't have to guess what the parable's about. Verse 9 tells us, it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So last week, parable was about how the disciples needed to persist in prayer and not lose heart. This week, there is a shift in his audience, and the focus is on genuine faith and the kind of person that God accepts. So last week, it was about persevering in prayer. This week is what kind of prayers will God even receive? And we're going to see a contrast between two types of prayers. So, Just like the last parable, this parable centers around two characters. One is an upstanding religious leader whom everyone would revere. The other, a notorious sinner whom everyone would despise. And what we are going to discover is things are not as they seem. While the people may have received the one and rejected the other, these roles become reversed from the divine perspective. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The synagogue was a vital part of life in every Jewish community in Israel. That's where they were instructed weekly, and that's where they had the 
the onus of their community. But the temple was the place where they all went for offerings and for times of appointed prayer. And so here these men go up to this temple, the temple in Jerusalem, to pray. And there were two times for prayer each day at the temple, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. Devout Jews would ascend the hill toward the temple and be there at the time of the burnt offering and the incense that was offered in conjunction with that, and that's when they would have this time of prayer. So the priest would be providing atonement for the people, the incense was symbolic of the prayers ascending to heaven, and they would have a time of prayer twice a day. Now the average Jew would not be there, most Jews would be working, um, They made it a point at those times to stop and pray, knowing what was going on at the temple. But you had the Pharisees who were always there. The Pharisees were there twice a day, every day. Now, we know well enough about the Pharisees as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke, so there's really no need to get into a ton of detail about them, but I will just summarize them briefly These were the spiritual leaders of Israel. These were the men who were in charge of the synagogues and along with the scribes, they were responsible for the religious instruction of the people. They also had the reputation of being Israel's holiest men. They had such a reputation, in fact, when Jesus describes how righteous you must be to enter the kingdom of heaven... He says in Matthew 5.20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus picks the highest standard the people could conceptualize and say, you have to be even more righteous than that. Now the point was to deflate everybody make them say there's no way we can be that righteous so that the way would be prepared for grace and they would embrace the cross. But all that to say, the Pharisees were a picture of extreme righteousness. They had a standard among men that was unparalleled. They not only kept God's law, they surpassed the requirements of God's law, in their thinking at least. The Pharisees were also separatists. They believed that associating with sinners would defile them, so rather than reaching out to those who had gone astray, rather than being faithful shepherds uh, who would go after the lost sheep of Israel, they would keep their distance from them and have disdain for them. And that is reflected in verse 11. Notice just the first few words. The Pharisee standing by himself. Now Jesus is going to do a masterful job here of giving us a wonderful and comprehensive picture with very few words. The Pharisee standing by himself. So this alone tells us, here is the posture of the Pharisee. He goes to the temple to pray, but he does not join in with the community of people praying. He stands apart from them 
because in his mind, he is in a separate category than they are. He is set apart physically from sinners so that he will not even associate with those who are gathered. They don't have to be the worst of sinners. They just have to hold to a lower standard than he does. And so he's not standing with them who are gathered. So it says the Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. Notice how he prays. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now the manner in which this man prays is going to keep himself at the center at all times, you will notice. The ESV says, standing by himself, he prayed thus, or he prayed in this way. Now the verb prayed here is in the middle voice. The verb is a middle voice verb. We don't have middle voice in English. It just means the subject is acting upon himself. So this could be translated that he prayed to himself, meaning he prayed inwardly, but that was not the habit of the Pharisees. The Pharisees made a big deal out of their prayers. They would raise their hand and they would pray out loud. And so it's more likely that Jesus is giving us another subtle detail here, another clue as to this man's condition. King James Version says he prayed thus with himself, The New American Standard says, praying this in regard to himself. The Berean Literal Bible, you may have not heard of that translation, praying toward himself. So it's interesting, his posture towards God is one of separation from others who he deems as sinners. And his prayer, literally in the Greek, it says, and he prayed toward himself. In fact, you notice that the whole prayer is all about him. His is a prayer of self-congratulation. Notice how many times he refers to himself in this short prayer. Verse 11, I thank you that I am not like other men. Verse 12, I fast. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, there's nothing wrong with you praying and referring to yourself or using the first person pronoun. But it should look more like, I need you, Lord. I am lost without you. I am hopeless if you don't come and help me. I want to see you and know you. But, what we find in this man's prayer instead is nothing but a rehearsal of his own religious works. There's not an expression of his love for God. In fact, there's nothing in this prayer at all that would demonstrate a love for God. It's all about him. Now, as I stated earlier, when you add religion to a sinful heart that has not been changed you just end up with religious sins. And you end up with someone who is not only earning their favor before God, 
but in the case of the Pharisees, trying to improve upon God's standards. As if one could do that. You remember how often Jesus came against the Pharisees because they turned the Sabbath from a day of rest into a day of misery. They did that with everything. They would distort the good requirements of God. Look at verse 12. He says, I fast twice a week. You know how many days out of the year that God required the Israelites to fast? One day. The Day of Atonement. One day a year. Yom Kippur. Now, as time went on, the Jews added to that. They added various days of fasting throughout the year. But even if you put all of those together, six days. But the Pharisees decided to multiply what God required by 100. God says, I want you to fast on this day. They said, let's make it twice a week. God says once a year, we'll do it a hundred times a year. And when you have a sinful heart that has not been transformed by the Spirit of God, these works become a way for you to put yourself on display. Because remember, you're broken in Adam, and it's all about you, and putting on a religion is not going to change your heart. So the Pharisees would fast on the two days that were called market days. Those were the days with all the hustle and bustle of people in the marketplace. And the Pharisees would go there and they would fast and they would show off that they were fasting. That's why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, when you fast, don't disfigure your faces like the Pharisees. He continues and says, I give tithes of all that I get. Now, Jesus never applauded them for their meticulous tithing. Yes, God required a tithe from every Jew in Israel, but once again, trying to improve upon God's standards, these self-righteous men decided they're going to tithe every single thing, even down to their spices. And so they practice this extreme religious observance and they stand back and say, look at all that we do, look how holy we are, look how much we sacrifice for God. And Jesus confronts them time and time again and their response to him is, we need to kill him. So here's this man who comes to the temple twice a day, every day, with his long religious garments and his deliberate posture away from the people. And he goes before God and he extols his own greatness. He's not there to find God. He's there to rehearse his own self-righteousness. So he thanks God that he's not a murderer, that he's not an adulterer, that he's not unjust. But in many ways, he's become something even worse. He's become that very thing that is most, most loathsome in the sight of God. He is proud at heart. He does not love God. And clearly, 
he does not love his neighbor. He is the lawbreaker of the worst kind because it's all under the pretense of righteousness. He's breaking all of God's commandments while at the same time putting on a show as if he's keeping them all. But God sees the heart and God is never fooled. And so religion doesn't make a man sin less. It just makes him sin differently. He can go from sinning at the bars to sinning at the church because the heart remains unchanged. Not only this, but I firmly believe that religion, apart from conversion, also places an additional barrier between the person and God. Okay, so because of our sin nature, there is a barrier that separates us, that separates you and God by nature. In fact, if you were to poll all of your neighbors who have that barrier in place, they are not Christians, but you poll them and say, why would God allow you into heaven? Number one answer, guaranteed, survey says, because I'm a good person. Nine out of ten of your neighbors are going to say that. Part of our broken condition is we do not see our own brokenness. So there's a barrier between them and God, and they justify themselves by redefining, their sta- redefining what good means. They redefine the, the, the standard that God requires, and they make their own standard, and they say, yes, I meet my own standard. So God's going to welcome me someday. I'm a nice person. I help out at the rescue mission. I give money to charity. And so there's a barrier that exists between your neighbor and God. But then you add to the mix a religious system where the person not only thinks he's a good person because he's broken in Adam, but he has works now that he does in the name of God. So your unregenerate neighbor, non-religious neighbor says, I am good. And your unregenerate religious neighbor says, I am good and I do the works of God. Whether that's keep the Ten Commandments or go to the synagogue or pray to Mecca or whatever it is. So you have an initial barrier that separates man and God, and now you have a double barrier because the person thinks he's justified by his own religious works. So rather than the religious man being closer to God than the irreligious man, I personally think there's an even deeper barrier there. Like there's a double barrier. They feel justified before God on the basis of what they do, and that is the opposite of the gospel. I think sometimes we look at religious people and think, well, they're closer to God than that guy sitting in a prison cell. But are they really? Jesus is going to say no. And this is going to become clear as we consider the second character. Look at verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, 
God be merciful to me, a sinner. Now notice his position. He's standing far off. But this is not to demonstrate his separation from others like the Pharisees. This is a description meant to communicate humility. He's not even worthy to be among the people. So the Pharisee thought he was too worthy to be among the people. The tax collector sees himself as not worthy enough to be among the people. It's an interesting contrast that Jesus describes here. He's standing far off because he does not perceive himself as belonging with the others. He shouldn't even be there in his thinking. Now, what would make him think this way? Well, just as we have seen a lot with the Pharisees through the Gospels, we've also run into tax collectors a number of times, so I don't need to get into all the minutiae, but I will just give you a big kind of summary picture. Tax collectors were Jews who would collect taxes on behalf of Rome, which meant they were working to support this evil Gentile government which was oppressing them. So, because of this, they were considered traitors of their own people. Rather than opposing these Roman oppressors, these tax collectors were helping them, and everyone knew they were helping themselves with some of the money. One commentary explains, Roman authorities typically contracted with individuals to collect taxes. As long as the Roman quota was met, the Romans were happy. For a tax collector to make a profit, however, required systematic overcharging of those who were taxed, as the Romans did not share a percentage of the fees with the tax collectors. The people looked at the tax collectors both as traitors and as thieves. So their job was literally to collect money from their fellow Jews to make sure that the Romans could continue to have power over them. And if that wasn't bad enough, they were taking more money than what was required. And this combination makes them the pariahs of Jewish society. So despised were these men that their testimony was not valid in a court of law, Their money was not accepted in a Jewish synagogue. And while the Jews recognized that lying was a sin, the rabbis taught that it was not a sin to lie to a tax collector. There would be no one more hated in a first century Jewish context. So Jesus is contrasting these two figures in a very deliberate way. There are no clearer extremes in this society. And notice how this man is. It says, but the tax collector, this is verse 13, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Pharisee stood proudly and prayed toward himself, but this man will not even raise up his head in God's direction. 
It says he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He's too ashamed. This is a man who is very aware of his sin. This is Christian in the pilgrim's progress. There is a day of wrath coming and he knows he's heading for destruction. This is further described. It says he beat his breast, which is a sign of contrition and mourning. It's a demonstration of grief over his wretchedness, of shame over his sinfulness. There's no good there's no list of good works for this man to recite. There's no self-righteousness for him to rehearse. He has come to the temple But he has come for a different reason than the Pharisee. He has come seeking mercy. And that is what he says. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The Greek is even more emphatic here. It says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. It's got the definite article in front of the word. The sinner. This is a man who has come with his burden and he has come looking for mercy. He knows he has nothing to offer God. He has not lived an upstanding religious life. All he has to bring is his shame and his awareness of it. And what Jesus wants you to know is that this man has a proper self-image. There's a lot of talk today about the importance of self-image. The 80s and 90s saw this big push for the self-esteem movement and that has kind of morphed into a modern obsession where all the voices in the culture are make sure that your child has a positive self-image. But as with all the things of the world, they miss the mark completely because it's not important that your child have a positive self-image, but that they have an accurate self-image. You and I and our children need the light of God's Word to shine upon us in truth so that we see ourselves in truth and not have some kind of distorted or elevated view of ourselves. When examined in light of God's law, all of our lives are as the tax collector. We have all broken God's laws every day. Jesus sees the heart. Your thoughts are broken. Your words are broken. Your desires are broken. And Jesus comes and He brings healing to the believer. Yes, but we, are, we break God's laws constantly still. And rather than coming to church and putting on some kind of religious mask to cover up a sinful vessel, we are to confess that we are unworthy of God's grace. We are to admit and agree with God that we deserve His wrath. We are to cry out for mercy to God because we need a Savior. The tax collector knew this. And with all of his sins, he had a self-image which was correct. 
The, self, the, the, the Pharisee's self-image was distorted and darkened, thinking he's serving God when his religion is really all about him. But the tax collector carried a burden on his back and he brought that burden into the temple and he was humble before God, crying out for mercy. The song of his heart might have been like that great 18th century hymn, Rock of Ages. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and Thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to Thee for dress, helpless look to Thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. The tax collector did not need to clean up his life. He did not need to stop doing bad works and start doing good works to try and justify himself before God. He's already guilty. He knows it. And so what he needed was to be cleansed and forgiven so that genuine repentance could take place and then he could be on the path to living a life that is pleasing in the sight of God. And then Jesus gives the punchline in all of this in verse 14. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Here's the big twist in the story which would have shocked the audience. This deplorable, even criminal, so-called Jew doesn't even deserve to be at the temple, is declared justified by Jesus, meaning that he is in a right relationship to God. That's what it means to be declared righteous. And the other man, the one with all of his religious works, all of his Torah observance, all of his commandments, all of his giving, all of his fasting, went home just as he came, lost, hopelessly self-centered, and seeking his own righteousness. And so this wonderful parable becomes the essential message of the Gospel. This is the key right here. What Jesus describes here is that there are two types of people in the world, those who are trusting themselves and those who are trusting in Christ. You could divide humanity into two groups. Those who are declared righteous by God and those who are self-righteous, who are trying to be righteous on their own. One is trusting in himself and his works as being sufficient in the sight of God, contrasted with the one who surrenders and recognizes he is spiritually bankrupt and has nothing to offer God but his sin. And he looks to God by faith 
and he cries out for a Savior. The good news of the Gospel is that we are reconciled to God by faith, not by works. And through that reconciliation, we enjoy the forgiveness of God, we receive it, we walk in relationship to God, and that relationship now produces good fruit. Good fruit does not get you into a relationship with God. Good fruit is the evidence of a relationship with God. This is what Christian in Pilgrim's Progress discovered on his journey. And I will close with this. This is Bunyan describing later in his journey. He says, Now I saw in my dream that the highway up which Christian was to go was fenced on either side with a wall, and that wall was called salvation. Up this way, therefore, did burdened Christian run, but not without great difficulty, because of the load on his back. He ran thus till he came at a place somewhat ascending, and upon that place stood a cross, and a little below, in the bottom, a grave. So I saw in my dream that just as Christian came up with the cross, his burden loosened from off his shoulders and fell off from his back and began to tumble and so continued to do till it came to the mouth of the grave where it fell in and I saw it no more. How is man justified before God? First, you have a burden and an awareness of your own sin. Second, you come into relationship with God through Christ crucified. That Jesus becomes our substitute and we embrace Him by faith. And then, and only then, can your faith be real and your worship be acceptable. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is such good news. It does not stop being good news to those who love You. Thank You for the cross. Thank You that this redemption is for all those who trust in Jesus. Thank You, Lord, that You call tax collectors and sinners to Yourself, drug addicts and prostitutes, and slaves to sin, and thieves, and liars, and blasphemers. Thank You, Lord, that there is none who is out of Your reach, and that You have given Christ for the world. Please, Lord, help us be a light to one another. Help us be a light to our neighbors, and co-workers, and friends. Help us, Lord, to share this wonderful and glorious news with all. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.